If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As the economic and political upheavals of the 1970s took their toll, the BBC found itself in a very different climate from the one it had enjoyed just a decade before. In the latest instalment of our monthly series marking the corporation's centenary, historian David Hendy spoke to Matt Elton about the divisions of the 70s and 80s and how the BBC's staff and programmes adapted to the new media landscape. So, David, um, we are in this episode going to talk about the BBC through the 1970s and 1980s. And I wanted to start by asking you about an idea that's sort of prevalent today, which is that of a culture war. How much do you think, as the BBC emerged from the 60s and headed into the 70s, that the corporation and I suppose the nation was experiencing its own version of a culture war? I think this notion of a culture war is is quite relevant uh, for the 1960s, although I think there's a difference between what was happening then and what's happening now. I think it, it's something now that is only really engaged with and being weaponized in a way, by the right of the political spectrum. And I think in the 1960s, there was a sort of, in a sense, a more evenly balanced culture war. So I think today is a, it feels like it's a confected one for a political end. In the 1960s, I think there was something that was more genuine and significant that was going on. This sort of tension between a kind of younger, more radical approach to what broadcasting could do, that society was changing and that broadcasting needed to accelerate its change. The BBC was sort of behind the curve and needed to catch up and so on. And for a lot of the people who were, you know, young and ambitious and maybe had ideas about what broadcasting can do, who were coming into the BBC, they wanted to 
push the BBC further. They kind of saw it as a, a congenial home, but a home that wasn't doing nearly enough. And then you've also got a kind of a sense of a conservative position which is to take a stand and to say thus far and no further that the BBC has if anything gone too far in the direction of quotes the permissive society and and that kind of conservative stand has some success I mean Mary Whitehouse was ignored by Hugh Carlton Green but she gathered a, a, a significant amount of public support and and she didn't really ever run out of steam by the 1970s you know she's still going strong so so that ability to mobilize public opinion i think is an interesting kind of dimension to this and certainly you know as we move from the 60s into the 70s and and and, and then the 80s perhaps some of the heat goes out of out of what had been happening in the 1960s but at the time it it felt real and i think it 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 wasn't confected in the way that i i suspect a lot of the culture war battles are today you mentioned there that Hugh Carlton Green the director general of the bbc until i think 1969 largely ignored Mary Whitehouse. Were there things as we head into the 70s that meant that the BBC and its staff had to start paying more attention to some of these criticisms? Was there a backlash against some of the innovations of the previous decades, in other words? I think there was a backlash, but it was kind of subtle rather than dramatic. I mean, you mentioned Hugh Carlton Green and his departure, I think, did make a difference. First of all, even before he departs, you've got a new uh, chairman of the governor's Charles Hill, the old radio doctor who is kind of parachuted in, someone from commercial broadcasting who was sort of, you know, regarded by by many at the BBC as a kind of rather vulgar intrusion who was there to kind of cause mischief. Then you have a new director general, Charles Curran, who is a more sort of austere, conservative figure, certainly more than uh, Hugh Carton Green. And then after Charles Curran, you have Ian Trethowen as the director general, who is, again, a fairly conservative figure. He's come from a kind of news and current affairs and political reporting background, but he's he's chummy with with Edward Heath and and, and senior Tories. And and these are, are people who are less, in a way, confrontational than Hugh Carlton Green. I mean, Hugh Carlton Green was happy to kind of cause offence and irritation in many ways, whereas Charles Curran and especially Ian Trethowen liked to kind of um, sniff out potential sources of trouble and friction with politicians and, and deal with them before they got out of hand. And, of course... That political environment, the the politicians themselves are changing. And in the early 1970s, you've got a conservative government, the government of Edward Heath. You've got the oil crisis. You've got the three-day week. You've got strikes and industrial disputes. Um, the, the, The situation in Northern Ireland appears to be deteriorating rapidly. And and social commentators at the time talk about a, a kind of society which is turning increasingly sour and, and, and fractious. So I think that's, that's part of the backdrop. And you can sense programme makers picking up on this. If you, if you look at the debates that are taking place at something like the weekly programme review board, for instance, you've got 
programme makers, dramatists in radio and television talking about a, a retreat from frankness, as if there was a kind of high watermark in the late 60s. And in the early 70s, they are being more cautious. And and part of it is the, the, the approach that Ian Trethowen as Director General would have in the 70s was this, that the BBC was in many ways fighting on too many fronts. It was under attack for its reporting on Northern Ireland. It was under attack for its political reporting. It was under attack from uh, the launch of commercial radio and so on. And that actually some of those debates, those aesthetic and artistic debates about modernising drama and pushing the limits and so on, seemed indulgent and, and a fight that actually in the scheme of things wasn't worth having. And so there was definitely a sense of retrenchment, if you like. You mentioned a few of the sort of upheavals and unrests of the 70s. Were there particular episodes or incidents that had a specifically great impact on the BBC and its relationship with the British public? Well, I think there are, there are a couple of sort of big things that that are worth pointing to. One which we sometimes forget about is the financial and economic climate uh, in the 1970s. So, you know, I mentioned about the oil crisis and the three-day week and so on. I mean, we've got a tightening of belts in, in broadcasting and particularly at the BBC. The era of 1960s optimism and expansion is over and you've got you've got inflation. So that means programme cuts. It means plans to merge radio channels to cut back on on programs you've got the imf and kind of monetary controls as well in the mid 1970s and this makes it harder for the bbc to justify its own spending so that's a kind of important general financial background but then of course you've got perhaps the most significant development is the election of Margaret Thatcher which comes at the end of the 70s 1979 uh, Margaret Thatcher is elected prime minister and this hangs over the BBC for the for the next decade because Margaret Thatcher was someone who needed enemies and the BBC fitted perfectly her need for enemies. It's a bit like the church or the universities or the civil service or the NHS or or local government. In other words, in her mind, it was bound to be inefficient. It was the ideological heartland of kind of consensus, uh, which meant it was a, a possibly socialist, but certainly woolly minded, probably unable to embrace the, the, the wonderful era of free markets and consumer sovereignty. Uh, it claimed to act for the common good, but that's probably a cover for avoiding change. And, you know, this was this was very much Margaret Thatcher's view, but it wasn't just Margaret Thatcher. I mean, under Thatcher, you have ministers like Norman Tebbit, who famously said, and, and let me quote him directly, that the BBC, he described the BBC like this, insufferable, smug, sanctimonious, naive, guilt-written, wet, pink orthodoxy of that sunset home of third-rate minds of that third-rate decade, the 60s so so in many ways that you know the, the the that the sort of attitude of the governing conservatives in the 80s was shaped by a kind of myth if you like of what the bbc had become in the 1960s and th- this this new climate is is pretty quickly palpable to the bbc you know margaret thatcher you know visits bbc buildings and kind of 
goes through the place like a dose of salt, exuding hostility and insulting almost everyone she meets, you know, for the for being overmanned and all that kind of stuff. So, so th- of course, you know, there's always friction between the BBC and governments, but there seemed to be something kind of deep rooted here that and it was going to matter for the BBC in the 1980s. That Tebbit quote is extraordinary. I mean, it leads the question, how how much were some of those adjectives he was talking about, insufferable, smug, um, how much were they based in truth? Well, I mean, it, uh, I mean, <laughs> I think that, you know, the, it is a myth that the BBC had become a sort of sanctimonious, naive, guilt-written and, 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 and so on. I mean, the BBC had changed in the 1960s, but, you know, the, the, the permissives, as it were, had not taken over entirely. The idea that it was a home of third-rate minds, I suppose, is also something to kind of challenge. I mean, the BBC was one of those institutions that was still attracting as it were the bright and 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 best uh you know it was it was a popular destination for very ambitious young young people now i mean of course the danger is of course that the bbc can become a kind of self-satisfied institution if it knows it's 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 good and it's powerful and it's 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 succeeding then there's a short step between that and being um if you like self-satisfied and resistant to change and of course I mean, perhaps this is personified in one of the director generals of uh, the 1980s, Alistair Milne, who is a very, very clever person, you know, he but intolerant of those he regards as a little bit dim. And those he regarded as a little bit dim were the majority of the board of governors and most of the government. Um, so he, he wasn't he, he wasn't sort of emollient in a way that, for instance, Charles Curran or Ian Trethowen had been when dealing with government uh, figures. Um, so, so I think that, that, that there is this sort of story that's at the heart of the BBC in the 1980s, which is to what extent does it respond to this hostility and to what extent does it kind of refuse to respond to that hostility? And, you know, there will be some observers who say that it's a tactical error to refuse to respond and others who say that to respond is to succumb. Well, I mean, you know, there. The, if you look at the whole decade, there are moments when it succumbs and there are moments when it fights. So once again, the story is always more complicated than it first appears. Was this, as we head into the 80s, was this new relationship between the political classes and the BBC, which is a relationship we've talked about in previous episodes, has long been sort of a, a running issue on both sides, I suppose, to some extent. Was this a newly heightened version of that relationship? Had it now changed into something that it hadn't been before? I think it was newly heightened in the sense that it was more more visible. It was more open. It was more in the public. And that was partly because it was, it, it, you know, the newspapers were, were involved in this campaign. It was, it was you know, it's part of the national kind of reported story of what was going on. And I think it was also, in a sense, heightened because the stakes mattered even more at this stage because broadcasting was changing rapidly. You have new technology, you have satellite and you have cable. And so there's the possibility there, particularly when you have 
newspaper proprietors like Rupert Murdoch, for instance, who are rich and powerful press barons who want to move into broadcasting. And the BBC is, in a sense, in their way. Uh, And so the newspapers uh, become part of this sort of anti-BBC sort of rhetoric, which is fairly continuous and fairly heated. And Someone once described the 1980s, the mid-1980s, as Thatcher's Maoist phase, um, by which they meant that there was a sort of coordinated or what appeared to be a coordinated effort between politicians who were attacking the BBC and seeking to undermine it and weaken it through restricting the licence fee and attacking its editorial values, and newspapers chiefly but not solely uh, the Murdoch press, who were feeding a kind of a drip feed of of criticism of the BBC, that it was too large, it was too old-fashioned, it wasn't giving people what they wanted, and that we were now in the age of consumer sovereignty, where people should be able to choose from a much wider range. And, and choice was one of those kind of big, powerful seemingly attractive words that actually caused a lot of problem for the problems for the BBC because the BBC historically it appeared had not really been about choice it had been about a group of um, sort of you know liberal humanist do-gooders choosing on our behalf if you like um, I wanted to ask about the Falklands War, particularly, and whether you thought that conflict showed some of the changes that had happened at the BBC or the way in which the BBC was regarded, even in the early section of this decade, of the 80s. Yeah, the Falklands War was was significant in in many ways because, I mean, Alistair Milne, who was the incoming director general uh, as, as the Falklands War um, was raging, later said that it was the Falklands War that had sowed the seeds of enmity between the BBC and, and the Thatcher government. Others talked about something sulfurous getting into the relationship during the Falklands War. And in many respects, this is sort of surprising because at, at a sort of technical level, what the Falklands War captures is a, is a moment of kind of change in kind of news reporting. Now, here was a conflict that was taking place thousands of miles away from, from Britain in the South Atlantic. And, you know, reporting it was perilous and difficult. You know, getting reports back from the Falklands to Britain was sort of difficult, particularly transmitting pictures. Radio is a little bit easier, and actually radio has a good Falklands war, if you like. Uh, It can be quick and it can be easy to get a voice on air, harder to get pictures. So it was a kind of, um, it was a trial of the BBC's sort of ingenuity on the ground to try and report this conflict, especially since the Ministry of Defence had imposed so many restrictions on what the BBC could report. It couldn't show battles taking place. It couldn't report the weather. It couldn't report what the what was happening on the task force and, and, and so on. And so, but you have a BBC that kind of responds with ingenuity. It, it expands radio coverage. World service broadcasts to the South Atlantic are kind of trebled in in, in duration and, and scale. And it does really well. But the BBC's problem is that it is treated as a traitor on the home front because there is opposition to the Falklands War. It is not a united 
British public. And rather like in the Suez crisis of 1956, the BBC feels duty bound to reflect this range of opinion. Uh, And so programmes like Newsnight or, or Panorama get into deep trouble from the government and are attacked by the tabloid press uh, for, for instance, referring to British troops as British troops, not as our troops. Now, the BBC had a very good historical reason for this. They weren't. Uh, when, When the BBC talks about ours, it means its own employees, its own correspondents and so on. So it was in, the BBC was being entirely consistent, but it was accused of being a kind of traitor in the midst, to quote a famous headline from, from The Sun. So it was a... It was a moment where, you know, the BBC felt it was it was actually providing an, an important and valuable news service to the British public under very, very difficult circumstances. Uh, but it also provoked a kind of series of really quite sordid attacks from the government and from the tabloid press. Still to come on the History Extra podcast public support and and public use of the BBC is quite consistent um there's 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 not very much sign of the BBC uh, of the public being disgruntled with the BBC and I mean if you think about the kind of programs that are there there are some incredibly popular and well-regarded programs on air this episode is brought to you by indeed We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This really was in some ways quite a changed landscape. Do we get a sense of any other particular flashpoints that contributed to this sort of newly fractious relationship? The other flashpoint that kind of rumbles on through the late 70s and the 80s is the reporting of Northern Ireland. And that causes real friction as well. I mean, if you've got a political class who look at broadcasting and they genuinely believe that 
to uh, allow paramilitaries or those linked with paramilitaries to speak on air is tantamount to agreeing to what they say on air and giving, to use that phrase, the oxygen of publicity to terrorism, uh, then that's going to be a problem for a BBC that believes that in order to increase public understanding of a conflict, it has to reflect and report on the full range of opinion, including those opinions that might be offensive to many viewers and listeners. And I mean, there are there are kind of pretty significant flashpoints when it comes to the reporting of Northern Ireland. There was an early warning of the conflict that could be caused between the BBC and the government in 1979 when Panorama, a crew from Panorama, are filming a group of IRA paramilitaries setting up a roadblock uh, in Northern Ireland. And uh, it's it's actually never shown, but the very fact that they were, you know, they were, as it were, collaborating to set up a filming occasion seemed treasonous in some way. And I suppose the biggest flashpoint of all was over a program called Real Lives, which was broadcast in 1985. And Real Lives was a series uh, that the BBC did, and this particular edition called Edge of the Union um, was made by a very, very experienced documentary maker at the BBC, Paul Hammond. And what had interested him was a way of trying to understand why people in Northern Ireland seemed to support people with extreme views as politicians. So it was a portrait of of two men on different sides of the divide, Martin McGuinness, the Republican, and Gregory Campbell, the Unionist. And they were both men who, from a kind of British perspective, held extreme views, but they were also church-going, working-class, good family men, for Paul Hammond, this was kind of a fascinating way of trying to understand what their electoral appeal was, if you like. And he went about making this documentary in exactly the way that he should have done. He was referring constantly to senior editorial figures in the BBC in Northern Ireland, checking at each stage that he was doing the right thing. There was no sign that he was doing anything wrong. But what was happening in London. The the atmosphere in Westminster and London was more febrile. I mean, this was a period of kind of fairly constant bombing attacks and, and terrorist shootings and so on. And when Margaret Thatcher and the government got wind of this programme, Leon Britton, the Home Secretary, writes an open letter which basically suggests that if the BBC broadcasts this programme, it's giving material assistance to the terrorist cause. And the Board of Governors intervenes. Now, the Board of Governors don't traditionally view a programme in advance of it being screened, but they demanded the right to see this programme before it was screened, and they hated it. (laughs) Now, the Director General at the time, Alistair Milne, who happened to be on holiday, comes rushing back. He's rather shocked by this because, from his point of view, he didn't expect the Board of Governors to like the programme, but he thought they would at least stand up for the principle that the BBC should nevertheless broadcast it. You know, the principle of of programme makers being able to, you know, go ahead with their professional instincts. But it, it, it gets halted. There's a rumbling behind the scenes. 
It has to be re-edited with new sequence put in. It is eventually broadcast after a strike by BBC journalists. And it really represents a kind of souring of relations, not just between the BBC and the government, but between the director general and, and his sort of professional programme makers, if you like, and the board of governors, a board of governors who, which is increasingly stacked with kind of conservative uh, figures. So so Northern Ireland was was very often that kind of the flashpoint that can captured a wider story about the distrust between the BBC and the government. You have talked about this, um, but I think it's worth just spelling it out. What were some of the consequences that the government threatened the BBC with if it did put a foot long in the government's eyes? There was always the threat, of course, of stacking the BBC with conservative figures in terms of the board of governors. And and actually, the government kind of got on with that. There were, there were plenty of conservatives who were parachuted into the board of governors. There was always the threat of the licence fee. It could always be pegged or set below inflation, uh, frozen for a number of years. That was always a very, very useful tool. And of course, there were those periodic investigations or, or committees that could change the whole climate of broadcasting. So, for instance, in 1986, you've got the Peacock Committee, which uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, introduces as, as a means of investigating whether or not the BBC should take advertising. And it had an, a, a sort of chaired by an impeccably orthodox free market economist who unfortunately for Margaret Thatcher came up with the wrong answer, which was that the BBC should not take advertising. His reasoning basically being that if the BBC took advertising, it would mop up all the advertising revenue of the commercial sector and, and therefore it would be on balance a destructive move. But that sort of triggered the idea in a way that the BBC could and perhaps should become smaller and more competitive in all sorts of ways and you know the 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 thinking about the bbc how could the bbc change and be and embrace this sort of the 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 idea of the free market and and competition and so on that 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 seeps into policy thinking about the bbc in the mid-1980s so amid all of these pressures and these fissures and these cracks, do we get a sense of how the BBC was regarded by the public at large? And are there programmes that we should revisit that gives us a sense of the BBC story throughout the whole of this decade, the 80s? Well, what's really interesting is that, that you know, public support and, and public use of the BBC is quite consistent. Um, there's, there's, there's not very much sign of the, BBC, uh, of the public being disgruntled with the BBC. And I mean, if you think about the kind of programmes that are there, there are some incredibly popular and well-regarded programmes on air. Um, so let's, you know, think of some high points right at the beginning of this period, 1979, the year that Margaret Thatcher gets elected, you've got Life on Air, the first of a whole series of David Attenborough epic natural history programmes that are hugely popular with the public and are genuinely groundbreaking in terms of the filming techniques, the scientific research that goes into them and the kind of ambition, the scale of the ambition, you know, doing for natural history what, say, Kenneth Clark had done for, for art in civilization, and embodying kind of public service principles of kind of quality and, and rigour and accuracy. So you've got that. You've got 
programmes that become hugely popular like That's Life, a consumer affairs programme, which is not particularly earnest, which is kind of fun and entertaining, but actually campaigns on behalf of the consumer. Uh, you know, that's a kind of new BBC in a way. It's kind of em- it's the BBC embracing the idea of the consumer. You've got a whole series of successful programmes like comedies like Blackadder, Only Fools and Horses, uh, The Young Ones. Uh, these become long-running big hits. In drama, you've got Dennis Potter hitting a kind of mid-career high point with things like uh, The Singing Detective. You've got Edge of Darkness. And in radio, which we mustn't forget, uh, you've got a programme like the Today programme on Radio 4 becoming increasingly a kind of hard-to-miss, agenda-setting political programme that millions of people are listening to and and genuinely influences the kind of political debates and the, the news cycle uh, of the rest of the day. So it's it's hard to kind of see a BBC which is failing in in programme terms. You know, you've got, you know, a full range from kind of quality establishment documentaries right through to kind of, you know, cheeky consumer programmes, comedies and and dramas. So, you know, this is is the kind of strange conflict between a BBC which is under siege from the politicians and a BBC which, by and large, is succeeding with the public. I mean, it's, you know, it's... it's still having a ratings war with ITV and ITV is very often winning that war. So it's it's not, uh, you know, an uncomplicated picture. The BBC does have moments of anxiety where, you know, it's slipping in the ratings war and it has to think about trying to introduce new programmes. This is the decade in which it introduces EastEnders, you know, a new set piece uh, soap opera uh, in order very, very explicitly to win back the peak time audience when it was losing it. So it's it's not a BBC triumphant, but it's a BBC that hasn't yet, as it were, given up in, in the battle for popular acclaim. By the time that we reached the time of the Gulf War in 1990, how different was the BBC from the corporation that had reported on the Falklands almost a decade earlier? Perhaps the most significant difference that we can point to is that by the time we get to the Gulf War, we've not just had, as Director Generals, Ian Trethowen and and Alistair Milne, but we've also had Michael Checkland and John Burt. And both of those Director Generals preside over a BBC that reforms itself from within in quite a dramatic way. Now, Michael Checkland was not a programme maker, he was an accountant. He was a money man. And, you know, against a, a political climate in which the BBC was being criticised for being kind of wasteful and inefficient and so on, we have, first of all, with Michael Checkland, um, Checkland a money man who speaks the language of business. And then we have John Burt, who joins the BBC in 1987, first of all, to run News and Current Affairs. And he, he changes that dramatically by merging news and current affairs into a big, powerful, single directorate. There are plenty of people 
who work as journalists for the BBC who are worried about a kind of homogenization, about being smothered by increasing editorial supervision and so on. But what he does is he he bring, brings new resources and staffing to news and current affairs. It becomes a very, very powerful directorate under him. And it means, for instance, that by the time of the Gulf War, we have a BBC with extra staff in foreign bureau, with with specialist uh, editors in economics and diplomatic affairs and so on. There's been investment in technology. And this means that, in many ways, the, the, the coverage that the BBC gave to the Gulf War in early 1991 matched, in a like, if you like, the scale of the, of the military campaign. There were reporters embedded with troops. There were reporters uh, at the... Uh, allied military bases. There were diplomatic correspondents. There was a Radio 4 continuous news service. There were extended television news services. And you also had, apart from that kind of John Burt style mission to explain that provided all sorts of context, you had good old traditional boots on the ground reporting of the military conflict itself. So, so the kind of there was a survival, if you like, older journalistic traditions, but there was a kind of expanded, uh, well-resourced machinery that was there. I mean, the other thing that John Burt did, of course, when he became director general, was to introduce the internal market to the BBC, producer choice, perhaps uh, suitably introduced on April Fool's Day in 1993, which basically turns the BBC into a series of business units so that programme makers and and, uh, service departments had to kind of buy and sell their services to each other. And and this was designed to reveal the true costs of each programme and to kind of cut out efficiency. People at the time complained that it was actually incredibly inefficient because it it needed a lot more bureaucracy and, and, and paperwork. But the crucial thing was that for the Conservative government, it was as if the BBC was reforming itself and doing the right kind of thing. It was becoming a more business-like, consumer-orientated entity. And in many ways, it's probably true that those big reforms by John Burt prevented further government attacks. They convinced the government that the BBC was changing in the right direction. Now, for some people at the BBC, there were huge losses as a result of this, as well as gains, that perhaps the cure was was worse than the disease, that that old traditions of kind of collaboration, collegiality were disappearing. And that with the huge turnover of staff, because this was part of the internal market was about outsourcing and whole groups of programme makers left the BBC, set up as independent production companies and so on, that there was this sort of loss of institutional knowledge and institutional memory that came as a result of all this. So I think that, that, you know, the BBC in at the beginning of the 90s was clearly a more commercially minded entity. It was still getting big audiences. It was still popular with the public. It had big hits. It was still not entirely lacking in government attacks. But some of the heat has been had been taken out of that early Thatcherite period where the BBC was constantly under attack. 
and so it was it was able to to start thinking more grandly about what the BBC of the future would be. It was a BBC that was starting to think about new technology in serious and ambitious ways about the internet uh, and about online. And that was going to be an important part of the coming decade. That was David Hendy, Emeritus Professor at the University of Sussex. His new book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. You can read more from David on the history of the BBC in every issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. (laughs) 